So, in the month of September, we've been talking about Jesus as a servant king and the call on our lives to follow the servant king, the, 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 that, uh, the paradox, the certain paradox or the surprise that Jesus had is he came as a king, but then he worked as a servant. You know, in, in John 13, there's the famous story where Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Maybe you are familiar with that. He performed the lowest duty for them. And, and at the end, he's debriefing with, the, with his disciples. And he says, you call me master and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. But now that I, your master and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I've set you an example by doing what is good. So Jesus is the ultimate servant king, and he calls us to follow him and to be willing to serve. And one of the ways he showed that to his disciples and, and explained that to his disciples was, was through the priority that he placed on the children. So I want to look at one of the passages that you, about Jesus and the children. It's from Matthew chapter 18. It's printed in your program. And this is when Jesus is trying to explain to his disciples what the kingdom of heaven is all about. It says the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them. And he said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child, he's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. This is God's word for God's children this morning. Okay. Okay, <laughs> now we can start. Okay, you know, you know, I think if you read through the Bible, one of the things you have to develop is some level of sympathy for Jesus. He, he picked 12 people, and he, he established those 12 people as the people who were going to carry on his legacy after he was gone. But those 12 people were just so thick, they didn't understand what he was all about. He talked about the kingdom that he was bringing, and... Every one of those guys thought the being partnership, being in partnership with him and bringing the kingdom was going to result in glory and wealth and, fa and fame and power and great opportunities to meet lots of women. That's what they were in it for. But Jesus over and over again is telling them that it's something completely different. He tells them that if they're following him, they're going to have to deny themselves and pick up their cross and follow him. He tells them that the kingdom is upside down. It's the opposite of the kingdoms of this earth. It's a kingdom where the last are first and the first are last. It's a, a kingdom where the servants are the greatest. It's a kingdom where the poor are blessed, where the rich are cursed. It's a kingdom that is absolutely the opposite of everything that they see as a kingdom. And yet, in spite of that, the disciples don't get it. And so they're arguing among themselves, and they're always discussing among themselves, well, of the 12 of us, who's going to be the greatest? And so Jesus 
is ever patient and he's always coming up with new ways to explain the kingdom. And so this time he says, I'm going to use a kid as an illustration. He's trying to, to clarify what the kingdom of God is all about, what the kingdom of God means. And so, you know, his disciples were a bunch of men, 12 men, and these were first century men in Palestine. And uh, you could say that was a pretty uh, chauvinistic culture, a pretty patriarchal culture. It was the kind of culture where men generally didn't have anything to do with kids until they were basically adolescents because the care of small children was not something that men got involved in or, or men even took any notice of. But Jesus brings a child to the middle of their circle and he says, everything you need to know about the kingdom you can learn from this child. And I want to just go through this in a couple points and we'll actually work from the bottom of the passage up. The first thing Jesus talks about is the priority of protecting the children. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a giant millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. He says, one of the most important things that we do in the kingdom is protect the most vulnerable, protect those who are at risk, and protect the children. And God is in the business of working to protect those who are, who are vulnerable. And this was particularly profound in the first century. You know, we talk today, sometimes there's a debate about when does life begin? Does it begin at conception? Does it begin at birth? Does it begin at viability? What, you know, it's an interesting ethical question that people have. If you had asked somebody in Jesus' day, when does life begin, they might have said five or six or seven or maybe ten years old. Before that, kids have no rights and they're generally somewhat expendable. And that was even more brutally true in the Roman Empire that, that dominated the, the world in Jesus' day. In um, the Roman Empire, there were no human right, rights given to little babies. Cicero was, was a, uh, a writer who, who, who wrote just before Jesus came, and he died in 43 BC. But in one of his books, he says, deformed infants shall be killed. But then he goes on to, to clarify that deformity could be an unwanted child, a sickly child, or simply a wrong-gendered child. So if the child was simply inconvenient, you could just simply get rid of it. Then Seneca who was actually a contemporary of Jesus. He was, was a, a Greek, the, the, the founder of the Stoic movement and, and was living and writing at the same time of the New Testament uh, writers. He comments in his book on anger, mad dogs we knock on the head and unnatural progency we destroy and we can drown children at birth who are weakly and abnormal. That was the cultural context that Jesus was in when he takes this little child and says, this little child is what represents the kingdom of God to us. And one of the marks of the early Christians, if you read ancient Christian history, one of the first things Christians started doing is rescuing children. So what the, the practice of in the Roman Empire was, if you couldn't handle a child, if you didn't think the child was healthy, if you didn't think the child was the right gender for you, you just simply... Uh, expose the child, which is basically take the kid out into the woods or take the kid somewhere and just leave the kid there. But what Christians started doing was finding those kids who were exposed, finding those kids who were abandoned, and, uh, and rescuing them. It says, 
The, the catacombs were filled with very tiny graves with the epitaph, the adopted daughter of blank or the adopted son of blank inscribed on them. And these inscriptions referred to the many babies and young children that Christians rescued from the trash heaps over the years. Tertullian says Christians sought out the tiny bodies of newborn babes from the refuse and dung heaps and raised them as their own or tended to them and cared for them until they died and then gave them a Christian burial. That was one of the ministries of the very early church was rescuing these babies that other people had, had abandoned. And this continued through the history of Christianity. People who have been influenced by the gospel and influenced by the teaching of Jesus have always set a priority on rescuing the children who were at risk. It's one of the uh, one of the legacies of Christianity. And, and so, you know, through, throughout history, there's orphanages and schools that are set up by Christians, particularly to help kids who are at risk and, and Christian movements among refugees to, to protect and to preserve the lives of, of refugee ch children and adoption agencies, all following this commandment, recognizing that some of the most important among us, the ones who represent the kingdom of God to us, are these vulnerable little children. And so, you know, this passage talks about how Jesus, how God is the protector of children. And one of the ways we're in alliance with God is when we choose to protect the children as well. And the second thing I want you to notice is the prestige of children. Jesus says in verse 5, whoever receives one, of the, one such child in my name receives me. So Jesus identifies himself with the little children. He clearly says that how you treat children, how you respond to children, shows me how you actually would treat me and how you would respond to me. Whoever receives this little child receives me. Whoever welcomes this child welcomes me. He says in another place, anyone who gives a little one a cup of water in my name gives it to me. Because Jesus, Jesus sees this identity between himself and the little children around him. And again, this was a patriarchal culture, a culture where little children were ignored, especially by men, especially by people who they didn't belong to. And their care was passed off to nurses and servants, and that was sort of the lowest, the lowest level of work that could be done. But Jesus has a different view. Jesus' view is receiving the children is the most important thing you do, because that reflects and shows the world and shows me who you really think are important. And, and your attitude towards children tells the world what your attitude towards me actually is. A uh, model of this is in Mark chapter 10. It's another passage where as Jesus was starting to get popular, there were too many people who wanted to see him, too many people who wanted to meet him. And so his disciples became kind of his entourage. They were trying to control access to him and make sure that the right people got to him and other people were kept away. And at one point, Jesus notices that they're, push, they're sending away all the parents and all the nurses with the little children, and they're lining up all these all these other people to talk to him. And, and you know, that, that's the, right in that story where a rich, young, powerful man comes to Jesus and, uh, and is proposing some sort of a partnership. And Jesus says, well, if you want to have a partnership, sell everything you have and just follow me. And the guy goes away sad. So Jesus was, was turning away most of the people who came. But then 
he says to his disciples, and this is in Mark 10, you can pop this up on the screen, Alan, says, people were bringing little Jesus to little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant, and he said to his disciples, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter into it. See, Jesus was not impressed by wealth, not impressed by power, not impressed by the learned and the accomplished. He was focused on the kids. Jesus identified with the kids. And he says, how we treat kids is how we treat him. You know, in the church and in the Christian community, there, there's a lot of emphasis on our own kids, you know, and rightly so, the nuclear family that we have. And, and you know, one of the things I enjoy as a pastor is to see a family, a family particularly if, if they're, they're, they've got their life together and, and they're very well organized and, uh, and very successful and have, have a life plan and everything. And then a kid comes along and all of a sudden all the all of their plans blow up, you know, and, and, you know, they used to have a perfect apartment, then you visit them after the kid has arrived and you realize things aren't so perfect anymore. But, but that's great because you have a new center for your life and the only thing that matters is the well-being of the kid and everything else has to serve that end. And, that, and that's, that's what parenting is. But on the other hand, you know, I want to say to everybody, it doesn't have to be your own children. It's not just parents and their children. There's lots of children who need a lot of help and all of us can take an interest in those children. Some of you are familiar, if you've been around, you know that we baptize babies. And when we baptize babies, one of the things that we're doing is we're putting the sign of the covenant onto that child and affirming that that child is a member of this church, that that child is set apart as part of the church. And, and, and some of you might remember that as part of the baptism, the parents take, take some vows and take some, some, uh, take, make some promises regarding how they're going to raise that child. But at the same time, we ask the whole congregation once the parents have said their piece, right before we baptize the child, we say, do you as a congregation promise that you will assist these parents in the nurturing care of this child? And we ask everybody in the congregation to raise their hands. So the church is a covenant family, and all of the children of our church are members of that family, and it's our opportunity and our obligation to care for all of them. And and so, uh, so this is a, a challenge for all of us to, to recognize the importance of churches. And one of the ways we serve Jesus, one of the ways we honor Jesus, is to welcome the kids that are around us. So it's the church family, but it's, it's not just the church family, it's all children. As I said, the mark of the early church is they would literally go to the dumps and the other places where kids would be abandoned, and they'd pick up these little babies. Some of them were sick or some of them had been exposed already, and they'd nurse them to health or try to care for them, and then they'd offer them a Christian burial. And that was, that was one of the ministries of the early church, one of the things that people were known for. And, you know, in our church, we're trying to develop our own church children ministry, but at the same time, we recognize that we're in a city, there's 30,000 kids in the city. 
And there's a lot of kids who have a lot of challenges, and there's a lot of opportunities to, uh, to minister to them. I, you know, I remember talking to Josh, the former director of New City Kids, and he's like, well, we figured it out right now, New City Kids, with, with uh, covers about 1% of the children in Jersey City, and so we're trying to figure out what to do about the other 99%. You know, there's a lot of opportunity, a lot of need in, in our city for a lot of different ministries for the variety of students that we have. And, and that's one of the marks of a faithful church. He who welcomes the child welcomes me. That's what Jesus says. And another way to look at that is if you want to experience what Jesus is like, look into the face of a child. If you want to meet Jesus, look at the child. Your real connection with Jesus will be shown by how you respond to children. So he talks about the priority of kids. He talks about the prestige of kids, that they are the face of Christ in this world. And the third thing is, he says, kids give us a picture of the gospel. The disciples' question that provoked Jesus to bring this little kid and have this kid stand next to him was, who is the greatest? They're, they're arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And uh, it you know, shows how far they are from understanding it. And Jesus says, unless you turn, this is the crux of his statement, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, the question when you have kids in your life is, do we teach them or do they teach us? Do we need to learn from them or do they need to learn from us? You know, I've thought about this a lot over the years. What does Jesus mean when he says, unless you turn and become like a child, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven? Is that like a counterfactual that we have to get babyish? Or is that, is that, is that about us embracing immaturity? And as I thought about it I, and, and thought about Jesus saying that to the disciples, one of the things that occurred to me is I think there was a grand illusion that the disciples were operating on at this point. They were going to Jerusalem. They thought, okay, Jesus is going to establish his kingdom there, and obviously his, his cabinet, his royal court is going to be us 12 guys, and we're going to assist him in the execution of his of his grand plans to, to uh, conquer the Roman Empire, to restore our nation to greatness and all those kinds of things. They thought they were on their way to greatness and the only question was, well, who's going to be the Secretary of Treasury and who's going to be the Secretary of State and who's going to be the uh, Chairman of the House of Representatives? That, those were the kinds of questions that they were wondering about. They presumed that they were partners of God and on their way to accomplishing his purpose. But you know what happened when they went to Jerusalem? Jesus started to do what he was going to do. He goes into Jerusalem, and, and what happens? Jesus is arrested, and he's rejected by the crowds. He's convicted, and he's humiliated. And this is his key moment. This is the advent of the kingdom. He's about to, to die on the cross to redeem all of humanity. And where are his disciples who were arguing about who was great? They all disappeared, except for the one who betrayed him, and then... Peter, who was confronted and asked, don't you know that guy? Aren't you one of his guys? And Peter denies it, denies it to, to their face three times. And so what happened is these disciples, like us, they presumed that they were someone great, that they could stand on their own and that they were on their way to greatness. And they didn't realize that they were actually just little children. 
You know, the Bible says in Matthew 26, after Peter denied Jesus three times and he saw Jesus led off to uh, be crucified, he went outside and he wept bitterly. He was crying like a baby. He was realizing that he actually is just a child. And I think, you know, I, I can relate to that in my own life, and, and I've seen this in the lives of other people. You know, we try to get our lives together. We try to get our careers together. We try to get our families together. We have grand plans for how our world is going to go. And then what happens is the very areas where we think we're the strongest, our world falls apart. The very areas where we think we have everything in, under control, everything falls to pieces. And we're left wondering, how are we going to make it? And we're left realizing, once again, our absolute dependence on God. And God does this to us. God did that to Peter when Jesus was crucified. So we go out and weep like a baby and realize that all he actually was was a child of God. And God does this in our life. I've just seen it over and over again. You know, the person who's all, all focused on their health all of a sudden gets stricken with a disease that's debilitating. Or someone who builds their whole life around their family and relationships and all of a sudden their family, their relationships fall apart. Or, or somebody who, whose whole life is, is about their finances or their job or their career, and then one day they realize their career is over or their finances are disappearing. And, and you know, sometimes this is through personal failures, or sometimes this is just through circumstances that expose that we really aren't as in control of our situation as we want to be. And all that does is it reminds us that we actually are little children. We actually are completely dependent on God. But just like sometimes you let your, your little two-year-old walk in the store for a little bit, and they just walk down the hall, and you're right behind them waiting for them to fall, God lets us walk on our own for a little bit. And then when we fall, he's there to pick us up. So if we want to be great, if we want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, we've got to become like a child. We've got to recognize in every area, especially the area where we think we have it all together, especially the area of our life where we think we have everything under control, that's the area where we're absolutely and utterly dependent on God's help and on God's grace. There are no adults of God. All of us, all we can be is children of God. God is not looking for partners. He's not looking for uh, vice presidents. He's not looking for associates. He's looking for people who want to come along and be his child. And regardless of how old we are, regardless of how accomplished we are, he invites you to recognize that your ultimate identity is that you are a child of God, and that the greatest thing you are, regardless of who you are, regardless of what you've done, regardless of who you're connected to, is that you are a child of God. So, so the, the, the children are a picture of the gospel, and finally, they're a picture of greatness. The ultimate question was, what, who is the great, greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And, you know, the disciples, if you had asked them about religion, you know, the, the, 
there was, religion was a big thing, much bigger thing in first century Palestine in Jesus' day than it is today. And religion was this complex, difficult thing, and it involved complying with all these rules and participating in all these different ceremonies and understanding all these concepts and memorizing all these laws, you know, the book of Deuteronomy. And, uh, and so, so to be great at religion was to be a very learned and disciplined and accomplished individual. But Jesus says true greatness begins when you become like a child. If you want to understand the gospel, I'm not going to tell you about it in words. He says, look at this child. Children show us what the gospel is. And I think that the essential way they do that is they know how to receive gifts. Have you noticed I mean, one of the annoying things about a lot of people, probably you have people like this in your family, is gift-giving time comes around, they're turning 50 or 60, or it's Christmas time, and you want to buy them a gift, but you just can't buy them a gift because they don't need anything and they don't want anything. Do you guys know people like that? You know, it can be, you know, they're, they're, they say things like, well, I'm a minimalist, don't get me anything, or my apartment's full, I don't need anything, or... If I want something, I'll, I'll just buy it for myself or, you know, don't buy me books because I don't need you telling me what to read and, and, and don't buy me clothes because I can dress myself. Very, thank you very much. You know, uh, and the other problem with being an adult is sometimes, uh, you know, around the gift-giving time, we, we get this sense of obligation because every gift we receive, we got to reciprocate with one that's a little bit better. It's like, Oh no, Aunt Jane got me a gift this year. Quick, wrap up that candle we haven't burnt yet and let's mail it to her. You know, it's like, because there's this, uh, this obligation. Every time you, you receive a gift, you kind of do this math in your head like, okay, did I remember to get this person a gift? And was it, was it equivalent? Uh, you know, are we, are we making a fair trade? Uh, you know, and, and the other thing about... Uh, about gift giving and gift receiving when you become an adult, it, it becomes a little bit embarrassing if you're dependent on a gift. I remember someone telling me once they were, they were uh, walking down Park Avenue and a Ferrari came by, and you know, when a Ferrari drives by, everybody stops and stares at it, but it had a vanity plate on it. And the vanity plate said, for my son. Can you imagine trying to be a tough guy or driving around New York in your Ferrari and the Ferrari says, well, my dad gave this to me for my birthday. <laughs> you know, kind of defeats the, the message you might, might be trying to send. Because when we're adults, we don't really want to be dependent on gifts for anything that's, that's really significant. But the great thing about kids is they have unadulterated joy when you give them a gift, right? Where do you want to be on Christmas morning? Regardless of your situation, you want to be in some room where there's a bunch of three and four and five and six-year-olds who are receiving Christmas presents. Because they don't say, oh no, Aunt Jane got me a gift, I got to get her something. And they don't say, oh, you know, this is too many toys, I don't have room to store all these things. You know, kids are just delighted to receive as many gifts as they can receive because kids are under no illusion that they're self-sufficient or that they can take care of themselves or that they have everything they need. So they, the more they receive, the better. And what the Bible says is the heart of the gospel, the heart of greatness in the kingdom of heaven has nothing to do with what we give God. It has everything to do with what God has done for us. And what we need to become 
to become great in that kingdom is to receive the gift of his grace for ourselves. And that's hard for us adults because we want to earn it. We want to buy it. We want to deserve it. And we don't want the insult of being told that this is only available to those who will receive a gift. But Jesus says, unless you can receive it as a gift, you cannot have it. Romans 6.23 puts it this way, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why are kids great in the kingdom of God? Because kids still know how to receive gifts. Kids are still delighted to accept gifts and enjoy and appreciate gifts without worrying about paying people back for their gifts. And the kingdom of heaven is only for those who can receive a gift. The greatest in the kingdom of God are those who recognize that the greatest thing about them is not their title or their connections or their family, fam, family tree, but the greatest thing about them is simply this, that they can stand before God and say, I am a child of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and I pray that we will be able to follow him in recognizing that essentially and ultimately our identity comes from knowing that we belong to you, that we are your children. Make this real, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.